Good evening and welcome to tonight's Bible study. I pray you have had a good start to your week. If you haven't, I truly pray for you that the rest of your week will be good. That we can surmise that God has been good to us. Amen. So shall we share a word of prayer, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, for an opportunity to come before your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit, who is the divine instructor and teacher, will lead us in this session tonight. May we be manifest to the wonder-working powers of the word that it will thereby transform us and help us to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we rounded up a series of parables from Matthew chapter 13. Like I did say, um, under part two of the kingdom is present with us, the bulk of our parables are going to come from Matthew chapter 13. So uh, we did round up that. Amen. So let me just go through them quickly in Matthew chapter 13. Seven parables. I believe we can all remember, can't we? Okay, so in the past six weeks, we've looked at seven parables. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 to 30, and verse 36 to 43, we looked at the parable of the tares and wheat. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31 to 32, we looked at the parable of the mustard seed. Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, we looked at the parable of the yeast. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 to 45, we looked at the parable of the hidden treasure. Matthew chapter 13, verse 46, we looked at the parable of the valuable pearl. Matthew chapter 13, verse 47 to 50, we looked at the parable of the fishing nets. Other versions like New King James will use the word, the parable of the drag nets. Matthew chapter 13, verse 51 to 52, we looked at the parable of the old and new treasures. So seven in total that we've done. So today will actually be our eighth parable. So last week we did um, the parable of the old and new treasures. And we looked at the heart of Jesus' teaching. He was not just interested in content creation or content delivery. You know, he was not just interested in being a master communicator, but he was very much concerned about content comprehension. That is understanding. Uh, every disciple after the heart of Jesus should learn this from our master. Our burden is to make the gospel as plain as day and as clear as light to our audience. Don't let us dress it and fluff it up and complicated too much. Let's make it very simple so that everybody will be able to understand because the gospel is that simple. It is in gaining full understanding of the kingdom concepts that the seed of God's word will be planted in our lives. Amen. So we learned last week that the teachings of the Bible is supposed to make us grow into Christ-likeness. That's the essence of discipleship. And one mark of being a disciple is you are fit to teach. 
And when we are talking about you are fit to teach, it doesn't mean that you stand in the office of a teacher per se. It just simply means that you are there to mentor new converts that come into Christ, that you'll be able to teach them the fundamental truths of salvation. Amen. And I believe that everybody should be able to come to that place. You know, discipleship is not only for ministers of the gospel. It's not only relegated to the fivefold ministry. This teaching is for every believer in Christ. But you will never be able to gain that capacity and that ability to teach if you are first and foremost not forming into Christ-likeness. So when we looked at the parable, that was the heart of the parable. Um, so what we did in Matthew chapter 13, verse 51 to 52, is one way by which we can effectively disciple through teaching. Another way we can disciple is by modeling. What do I mean by modeling? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Apostle Paul answers something to the Corinthian church. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's also a way of discipling. You disciple people by modeling. Because sometimes if you are also involved in teaching too much and you yourself, you are not living by the teaching, your testimony becomes baseless. You know, so for our 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 testimony to become authentic and for us to become real and genuine, we shouldn't just preach one thing and then live another way. You can preach so powerfully and so passionate on forgiveness, yet you yourself you are having three or four grudges against certain people. And when they quote you your message, you will say, "As for me, my case is different." Uh, what, you know, so you make your your testimony very baseless. So one way by which we can also disciple is to model. So First Corinthians chapter eleven, verse one, is our reference scripture. Every disciple should be like a house owner. We learned that last week. You should be able to integrate old and new treasures, old and new vessels together. And it, it talks to us about the grace, the skill, and the ability to rightly divide the word of truth by looking at both testaments in the old and new. It requires diligent study. It requires a lot of study. That's also one sign of a mature believer, one who is able to take the word of God, read, study it for himself, and, and come up with a, 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 a biblical conclusion. That is That is also a sign of... Uh, maturity amen so i was just thinking about this and i feel i should say this maybe um, a pastor is listening to me by a podcast or something you you judge a ministry's impact by the word of god's influence on your hearers um you have to ask yourself certain questions are they growing in christ likeness and if they are growing in christ likeness are they discipling others? Okay, at least that is one of the major aspects of ministerial impact. So if you are listening to me and you happen to be a pastor and you are struggling with attendance and lack of patronization and lack of resources, um, don't give up. Don't be discouraged at all. Amen. Don't judge yourself a failure. Focus on 
the three people, the four people, five people, ten people. Maybe you may have been in ministry all these years and you may have just ten people. That's fine. Focus on those ten. Build them up. Nourish them with the word of God. Take your time to patiently disciple them because that is the great commission. And trust and believe in God that the members that you have, they will grow up in the likeness and in the image of Christ. And then they will also impact other people. I believe that is more of a blessing than just gathering numbers. Of course, numbers is very important. It, it speaks of a certain influence, but you can't just use singularly that as a yardstick of influence. There are many other factors. Amen. So I pray that uh, we'll be encouraged. So every minister is listening to me. Just shepherd what God has entrusted in your hands and it is God that brings growth. Amen. I just feel like somehow I just needed to share this. Amen. So please, if you are listening, pray for pastors, okay? Pray for pastors. The job is hard. Sometimes it can be very discouraging. It can be very tedious. Um, a lot of attacks, you know. Pray for pastors. Um, pastors go through a lot. You may never know. They will just smile and come and tell you God is good, but deep, deep down they might be wounded. Amen. So pray for pastors. Okay. Let's move on to tonight's parable in Matthew chapter 18. And the parable in question is that of the lost sheep. So we are going to look at two references of this parable tonight. So this is our eighth parable. The first one is in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10 to 14. And the second and the, and the second our last reference is in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. To seven. All right. Before that, let me just pause here and let's answer Felicia's question. So just open to Matthew chapter 18, verse 10 to 14. We'll, we'll, we'll come to it, but let's answer Felicia's question. We said we we're going to answer it last week. So please, could you ask it again? And then let's try and answer it. Amen. Now, my question was. Um... Was the is the Holy Spirit's job to make us into a disciple? Because I'm struggling. Like, um, I have I have I have heard testimonies that when people get to meet Christ, they meet the Holy Spirit, and things change. Like some people change. And I feel like the change is not, they weren't struggling to change, they weren't forcing to change. The change came automatically, but I'm not experiencing that. Amen. So her question is, does, can the Holy Spirit disciple people? Am I right? That's what's under you. Does the Holy Spirit disciple people, right? Or yes. can the Holy Spirit change people? The change is the decide. Okay, so the disciple means you have been changed, or okay. you are quite like to be. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, what is the work of the Holy Spirit in our discipleship? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. All right. Because it, 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 it seems like last week we were talking about one way by which we are effectively discipled is through the word. So where is the Holy Spirit's role, the Holy Spirit's influence 
when it comes to the making of a disciple. Will anybody want to help out? It's a good question. What do we think? All right, let's go to Philippians chapter 2 then. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So how do you obey? Do you obey by willpower? Let's read on. Not as in my presence, but now much more in my presence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So now, how do you work out? Now, Pastor Paul is saying some very um, operative words here. He's talking about the church's obedience. Obedience to the doctrine of Christ. How do they obey? Now he's talking about something. Work out. How do they work out? So do we obey by will? Do we obey by efforts? Do we work out by will? Do we work out by efforts? Okay, so now verse 13 is the caveat. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So how would the Philippians be able to obey in Paul's absence? It is because of God who works in them both to will and to do for his good pleasure. How would the Philippians be able to work out their own salvation? Is it by will or it is by effort? No. For it is God who works in them both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So now when we talk about the word is the major way by which one can be transformed. The word does not work in a vacuum. John 6 verse 63. So when Paul was telling them that they should obey the doctrine, they should obey the faith, he's not admonishing them to use will or effort. When he told them to work out their own salvation, he's not admonishing them to use will or effort, but he later on encouraged them that for, that's why that word for is there, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So you will be able to obey, you will be able to work out your own salvation when you rely on the ability and the power of God. For it is God that works in you both to will. He gives you the will to be able to obey. He gives you the will for the, to be able to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Amen. So look at John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits 
nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirits and they are life. So whenever you read the word of God, you are also imbibing in you the spirit of God. So yeah, we might say that one of the ways by which you can be effectively discipled is through the word of God. It doesn't negate the influence and the working of the Holy Spirit in helping us to grow more like Christ. Do you understand? So whenever you read the Bible, you are also having fellowship with the, with the Holy Spirit because Jesus says that the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit in their life. It's not just letters. It is spirit-breathed. It is spirit-inspired. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, lets us know that every scripture, all doctrine, is spirit-inspired. It is spirit-breathed. That's what it means in the Greek. It is given by the inspiration. The inspiration there means it is spirit-breathed. It is spirit-inspired. So whenever we read the word of God, it is just like we are inhaling or we are imbibing the presence of the Spirit. Amen. Does that answer your question? Yes, sir. So, so can you see the role of the Holy Spirit in our discipleship? Is it clear? Because if you are really going to grow in the image and the likeness of Christ, you can't do it by willpower. That's where the frustration comes in. Mm -hmm. Frustration will always set in when you are trying to do it by willpower. But we should all come to a place where we admonish the workings of God and say, for it is God who works in me, both to give me the will and to do for his good pleasure. Any scriptural commandment I will have to obey, it is God that works in me, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So that's the Spirit's enablement. So the Holy Spirit is very, very active in our discipleship. Amen. If we are going to conform to the image of the Son of God, who is Christ Jesus, we will need the Holy Spirit's help. Amen. But like we keep on saying, you also can't be effectively discipled if you are not going to take time to read the Word of God. And like Jesus said, the Word of God is the Spirit of God. Amen. All right. Who has anything else to add before we go to our parable? I, th I thank God that I remembered. Otherwise, it would have escaped me. I want us to do justice to that before we touch on today's lesson. Thank you. Someone give a contribution. Hi, it's Pastor Hi. Jessica. Yes. I put something in the chat box. I was, up, I was just about to read it, so. Okay. I'll read it. You can just expand upon it then since you're already here, so. Okay. So um, it's it's an excellent question. I think Pastor, Pastor Stephen did a, a, a thorough job. I did want to add that. So I, I wrote that um, the Holy Spirit has a crucial role in the life of a believer. He guides, he teaches, he's a witness, a comforter, 
in in the in the in the word we also have moments where uh he also can tell us what to say in certain situations especially when we're witnessing or preaching um the other thing i wanted to add is we have to yield to the spirit you know uh because he, the spirit can be guiding us and changing and wanting to change us but we are unwilling we're not wanting to do what he says and so because i had i had a similar similar question in the beginning because i i changed when i got saved right um i did but then there was other things you know the spirit did the work when i got saved but then there was other things that required my conscious effort um like for example over worrying um anger issues um you know maybe maybe yours might be jealousies or envy you know what whatever that may be uh, uh temptations that maybe you might be or we might be dealing with as human beings those things require us like pastor steven said to be in the word and when you yield to the letter of God's word, then the Holy Spirit intervenes and also works. So we have to also keep that in mind. That's what I wanted to add. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Excellence. Please, is your question answered? Yeah. Now, someone else has any more contribution before we move on to today's study. Okay. Then we can move on. All right. Great. Great contribution, Pastor Jay. All right. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10 to 14. Normally, if you, if you um, critically observe when I give the references of the parable, I just normally pick one scripture and I read. But today, to really get the fuller um, picture of this parable, it needs to be that we read um, both references in Matthew and Luke. Amen. So let's start with Matthew's accounts. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10 to 14. I read, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 11. For if the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Amen. So we have to understand one of the ways to interpret a parable is to look at the premise upon which the parable is narrated. Okay. So the, the parable in Matthew is based on the premise on causing a believer to backslide. How do I know that? If you read the first nine verses, 
On record, Jesus reserved some of his strongest rebukes towards the religious leaders in the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the like. But this particular rebuke was for his disciples. It wasn't for the religious leaders of his days. Jesus saw a little child in their midst, and he compared a believer to a little child. He says that if you be, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you should be like a little child. Believe in the kingdom of God. And this scripture lets me know that every believer will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Every believer. If you are like a little child. So when we receive Christ as our Lord and personal Savior, we are all little children. Little children in a sense that God is our Father. It's not, it, it has nothing to do with immaturity or maturity. It has more to do with the fondness of a father towards his kids. Are you understanding me? Okay. So um, Jesus compared believers to little children. And he says that if you receive the kingdom of heaven, if you believe in the kingdom of, like a little child, be the greatest. But Jesus gave his disciples a strong warning that if the disciples cause one of these little ones to backslide, that's a believer. A little one is a believer. So let's try and get that. In the context, a little one is a believer. So Jesus is giving a message to his disciples. And I believe the reason why he's giving a message to his disciples is because it's his disciples who are going to usher in the era of the church. Jesus is giving a warning to his disciples that if you cause any of these believers who are like little children to backslide or live the faith, it will be better that such a disciple doesn't exist because it will be better for a millstone to be hung around his neck and drown into the depth of the sea. This is not a terrorist talking, by the way. This is Jesus talking. Gentle Jesus, like the songs that we sing. He is saying that if you cause a believer to leave the faith, he's talking to the disciples. If you cause one of these little ones to be offended, it is better that a millstone will be hung around your neck and you are drowned into the depth of the sea. In Jesus' eyes, it is better that you don't even exist if you will cause a new believer to backslide because of offense. Jesus then warned of offense, but he wanted the disciples to be more wary of who the offense will come through. Can I say this? Many believers have left the faith because of established believers. They have caused little ones to be offended. And how do we offend a new believer? Right then, then it's there. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 9. When you despise the believer and you make them not feel welcome. That, that's, that's one way by which they become offended. Even in, Jesus gave this warning to the disciples and they nearly transgressed this commandment. 
especially if you read the, the book of Acts chapter 11. When Peter went to preach to Cornelius in chapter 10, Cornelius was a Gentile. And when he went back to the church of Jerusalem, the Bible lets us know that the church of Jerusalem, instead of them rejoicing, they were very, very angry. Very angry. Very, very bored. Like, how do you go and preach to a Gentile? Until Peter was able to convince them that I did what I did, not because it was out of my volition, but because I had to be obedient to a heavenly vision or a trance. For Peter's case, it was a trance. I had to be obedient to a trance I had. You see, so that scripture nearly came to pass. We are the church of Jerusalem. We don't want Gentiles, people who are not Jews, to receive the gospel. So they nearly transgressed the commandment. So believers, established believers, people who have been in church for a long time, we should be very careful when people who have just received the gospel come into our midst. We should be very careful with how we handle them, our approach towards them. Yes, they might not be spiritual like you. They might not be able to quote the Bible like you. They might not even be able to pray. But that doesn't mean you should discount and despise them. Amen. So Jesus is warning us. And Jesus says something striking. He says that every believer is seen by the angel with the face of God on them. So I believe that if an angel is looking at me right now, he's not looking at me as Stephen. He looks at me with the face of God on me. I believe in an angel is looking at Jessica. He will not look at Jessica as Jessica, but he will look at Jessica with the face of God on her. If an angel of the Lord is looking at Shaquana, he will not look at Shaquana as Shaquana, but he will see Shaquana as the angel of, as the face of God on her. Every believer has the face of God on them. So when angels see us, I don't believe that they really see our visage. They see that we are bought by God, we are owned by God. That is why the face of God is on us. And Jesus is warning, because of that, you don't have to cause people to be offended. So on the premise in verses 11 to 14, Jesus talks of himself as the son of man in this parable, that he came to seek who was lost. And who are the lost in context? The lost in context here are offended believers. Do you understand? Jesus then used the analogy of a man owning a hundred sheep. And Jesus further went on to narrate the parable that if one of the sheep goes missing, he leaves the 99 goes into the mountains looking for the strayed sheep. And when he finds the strayed sheep, he rejoices more for the sheep than the 99. So Jesus used this story to really talk about God's heart, that it is his will that none who come to the faith will perish. God loves everybody. So Jesus talked about this story just to let us know the heart of God, the love of God. God doesn't want anybody to perish. 
That's why Jesus went out of his way to minister to a Samaritan woman because God doesn't want anybody to perish. That is his will. I believe some Sundays back I talked about the will of God. The will of God is that God doesn't want anybody to perish. And Jeremiah really encapsulates this best when he talked about the heart of God our Father to Israel in Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 14. So you can open to Jeremiah 3 verse 14. Jeremiah 3 verse 14 and it reads, Return all backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family and I'll bring you to Zion. You know, Zion in the Old Testament is a type of the church. So yeah, you may have backslidden. You may wander off, but I'm married to you. I'll let you go. Come back. I'll take you. I'll establish you in Zion, the church. Amen. So God never gives up on a backslider. So this story is talking to us about the restoration of a sheep that goes astray. Restoration of a believer who has left the faith due to offense. Jesus is using this story to talk about the heart of God. And that was something that Jeremiah had already said. So Jesus is reiterating it in a parable. Amen. So now, let's look at the second reference of this parable. Go with me to Luke chapter 15, verse 1 to 4. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 to 4. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 3. So the parable, so the parable he spoke to them said, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now, it is very likely that Jesus repeated this parable on two premises. Because if you critically observe Matthew chapter 18 and Luke chapter 15, they have two different scenarios. Same narration of the parable, but different life lessons, depending on the premise. Are you understanding me? The premise upon which 
the parable in Luke is narrated started with an accusatory tone from the religious leaders in the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, when we read Matthew chapter 18, the premise upon which Jesus narrated the parable of the lost sheep was because of offenses. He warned his disciples rather. Because in Matthew chapter 18, there were no religious leaders there. If you read from verse 1, there were no religious. It's only disciples who were there. That's what his, his audience. So it wasn't... So he wasn't responding to an accusatory tone. But in Luke chapter 15, the premise upon which this story is set is he was responding to an accusatory tone. And what was the accusation? He eats with sinners. He receives sinners and he eats with them. That's the accusation. Because Jesus had all manner of people with checkered past and checkered background coming to him. It didn't make these synagogue people feel comfortable. These people, if they come around the leaders, they will make them nervous. These are the people just are hanging around with. Tax, collect tax collectors were seen to be very vile. They seem to be very vile. It was said that during the Roman times, because, you know, during Jesus' time, it was, they were under the Roman Empire. During the Roman um, Empire, Jewish people were extremely poor. All their money was, was for taxes. Just imagine, you, you pay four times your tax rate. How are you going to have money? They were very impoverished. So a Jewish person really hated a Roman and hated a tax collector. And the tax collectors were not Romans. The tax collectors were Jewish people who were sold out to the Romans to tax their own people. So when a Jewish person sees a, a tax collector, he sees him as a sellout or, quote-unquote, an Uncle Tom. As, you know, it's, you know, when you use the word Uncle Tom, it's a very disparaging and a very denigrating term to use. Right, So that, that's how the, the Jewish people saw the tax collectors. So they saw them in the same bracket as any kind of sinner. A murderer, an adulterer, a liar, tax collector. You, you, you were a sinner. Uh, for tax collectors, it's a profession, but you were seen as a sinner because of how brutal and how conniving you were. That's why when Zacchaeus came to the Lord, and I believe Luke chapter 19, I believe so, he said that anybody I have taken money off, I'll restore it to them four times over. Because that's, that's how much they were charging. They were enriching themselves at the expense of the labor of the Jews. So they, they really hated the tax collectors. So these religious leaders, when they saw Jesus eating with them, they were very worried. They were very worried. Couldn't believe him like, wow, you are not spiritual at all. You eat with these people. And mind you, most of these Pharisees and scribes, they were not believers. They were just religious, but they were not believers. Okay? 
and when I'm talking about religious, I'm talking about religious in a sense that they were self-righteous. You know, re religious can be used in a good or a bad term. A typical example is in Acts chapter 17. When Apostle Paul went over to, um, what's the name of this temple? Oh, what's the name of this temple? Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. He said, um, you men of um, Areopagus, I suppose that you are very religious. That was not a good word. Religious there means you are very superstitious, you are very ritualistic, you are very traditional in that sense. Then when you read James chapter 1, the Bible says that we should practice pure and undefiled religion. And what's pure and undefiled religion? To keep ourselves unspotted from this world and we should visit orphans and widows. You see, so religion, it's a neutral term. In James chapter 1, it means a very good thing. We are to be religious. And when you look at that word religious, it means beautiful worship. We are to practice beautiful worship by keeping ourselves unspotted from the world and visiting orphans and widows. That is pure and undefiled religion. In Acts chapter 17, when Apostle Paul used the word, you men seem to be very religious. It wasn't a compliment. It meant that you were ritualistic, you were traditional. And why did um, Apostle Paul say that? Because they worship a God with an inscription. You know, something had been inscribed on, and that's what the God they were. They didn't know Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul used the word religious. So sometimes when you use relig the word religion or religious, it depends on the context. But for, thank you, someone has quoted that scripture. Thank you. All right. So, but for the Pharisees, and the scribes and the Sadducees, they were religious. And they were religious in the sense that they were self-righteous. And they felt they didn't need the gospel. Self-righteous people see no need for repentance because of tradition. Once upon a time, Jesus told them point blank in Mark 7, 13 that you have made the word of God of no effect because of your tradition. And this is very sad because many people have gone to church all their lives, but are yet to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and personal Savior. Many fall in the category of the Pharisees and said, they are just religious. There is no fruit of a regenerated life. Look at these people. They just play church they just followed the form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. They, they lived very hypocritical lives. There was no sign that they were new creation. They were very mean. They were very unforgiven. And sometimes you see people who have been in the church so long, they don't have a personal relationship with Christ. They are mean. They are unforgiven. They have a bad attitude. They don't have no relationship with the Holy Spirit. Yet, they are very judgmental and very condescending. And you will see a lot of that in the church today. No personal relationship with Christ. Because they are just following a tradition. 
When I was young, my grandma took me to church every Sunday. My mom took me to church every Sunday. So I go to church every Sunday. But they have not received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and personal Savior. And if we fall in such a category, we are religious or self-righteous. And one thing that self-righteous people hate is evangelism. They don't like evangelism. They are more interested in church programs. They are more interested in doing things inwardly. Let's do concerts, church bazaars, church outings, revivals, prayer festivals, camp meetings, and the like. But when it comes to evangelism, where you will have to go outside the church to minister to outsiders, they will never do it. They'll never. Uh, I believe that most of our churches are filled with self-righteous people. That is why there is lack of evangelism. Lack, lack of evangelism. People don't witness. People don't have the appetite to witness. People don't have a passion because they are self-righteous. They just fall in the same boat with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees don't like evangelism. To go and minister to an outside, no, they can't do it. It's, it's inward looking. That is why they had a problem with Jesus who was eating with tax collectors and sinners and also receiving them. They had a problem with that. Self-righteous people always have a problem with outreach programs. They will discourage you from the, with their non-participation and they will not contribute. A contribution in terms of funding or even if resources are needed. Many self-righteous people cannot even handle the smell of poor people or poverty. They can't. Many self-righteous people cannot even minister to people who are bloody or people who are dirty. They can't. Do you, don't you remember the Good Samaritan? Look at the priest and the Levites. They all couldn't minister because he was bloody. Sometimes to do witnessing, it comes with an inconvenience. And sometimes the reason why we don't witness is because we don't want to be inconvenienced. And if you are waiting for evangelism to be conveniencing, you will never do it. Do you think Jesus, it was convenient for him to come? I believe it was inconvenience. But it was because of the love he had for you and me. That's why he came. Many self-righteous people cannot touch the messiness of people's sins because they are too good for that. They can't go into the gutter and minister to people in the messiness of their sins. God should really heal the church because we are really sick. For me, I believe that one of the reasons why I'm very sure that the church is very sick is look at our attitude towards evangelism. Or even like even when we do a program like friends and family, like people even don't see the seriousness. It's, it's true. That's, it's a general overview of the church. It's not just one church, but you can see it's like we don't care too much about the lost. When we say let's pray for blessings, we pray with so much passion and so much urgency. Let's pray for people that they will receive Christ. We, we don't like it. 
we, we don't we don't like it. And this were the people Jesus was was experiencing. He was experiencing pushback from them. And because of that, he decided to narrate this parable again on a different premise. But this time, Jesus did not say the son of man. He rather posed this parable in the form of a question that, what man of you? You are accusing me, but what man of you owning a hundred sheep will leave the 99 and, the, and will leave the 99 in the wilderness and go and search for the other sheep? What man of you? You see, the first parable in Matthew chapter 18, he, went, he, he explicitly included himself in that parable that the son of man will leave the 99, will go and search. This time, he made the shepherd a blank check. A little more detailed than the Matthew one, and it was worded differently. He talks of a shepherd who leaves the 99 in the wilderness after one is gone missing and searches till he finds it. That's the same narration in Matthew. And when he finds the missing sheep, the Bible lets us know that he takes the missing sheep, lays it on his shoulders, rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his neighbors and his friends for merrymaking. Because of the found sheep. You know, in Matthew chapter 18, we don't hear of anything of a celebration. So that's why I'm saying a little more details answered. But when you read verse 7, you get the truth of that narrative. Verse 7. I say to you that likewise. That's the catch to understand that parable. Same parable, different premise, different lesson. What's the lesson? There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. The truth of the matter is that everybody needs repentance. Do you know, repentance just means change of mind. Metanoia, change of mind. Everybody needs to change. That's why we read the Bible. Whenever we read the Bible, we come to a place of repentance. We experience a change of mind or a renewing of the mind. So this parable in a different scenario with a similar narration is talking to us about the salvation of a soul, not the restoration of a backslider. Can we all see that? Jesus is highlighting the repentance of a sinner over a self-righteous religious individual who sees no grounds or room for repentance. So you see, one parable, different premises, different lessons. So this goes on to explain Jesus' actions and motives, why he will be accommodating to tax collectors and sinners, and why he will eat with them. Because Jesus saw it as an opportunity to preach the gospel to bring them to repentance. Rather than hanging around with church folk who are stuck in their ways. So from the parable in the two references of Matthew and Luke, there are some lessons to note and then we are done. I can't believe that I'm almost out of time. But let me, let me skip through it real quick. And if you don't get it, just listen to the podcast. Number one. It is the will of God that no one will perish, either a backslider or the sinner. 
God doesn't want any to perish. So in Matthew chapter 18, it talks about a backslider. One who has come to the faith and has left the faith due to the attitude of established believers. Jesus will still go after them. He mirrors the heart of the father who says that I am married to the backslider. Never give up on a backslider. It is the will of God that no one will perish, a sinner or a backslider. Number two, Christ's purpose on this earth was to save. Not to make us rich. Not to give us a good marriage. All these things I understand. Sometimes they are byproducts of our salvation. But the main thing why Christ came on this earth was to save. So when we are giving this message to our friends and family, in this friends and family month, we have to let people know that Jesus came to save. That's why. Many years ago, Billy Graham, great man of God, great preacher, love him. If you should listen to he has many of his messages in, on YouTube. Just listen to them. You'll be blessed. And when he makes an altar call, one of the things that he used to say was that if you receive Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, you will not divorce. Which was correct. Because during Billy Graham's day, it was one out of every hundred Christian marriages that had a divorce. So that's 1% compared to the world. One out of every hundred Christian marriages end up divorce. So it was a good calling card to use. But now, if I'm preaching today, I can't use that as a calling card to invite someone to Christ. Because today, Christian marriages is 50%. So if you see two people that get married on a Saturday, potentially one will end in divorce. It's 50%. So what I'm trying to say is that we have to understand why Christ came. What was his purpose? Now, I'm not saying that what Billy Graham said was wrong. There is nothing wrong with that. Are you understanding me? It's... It's great. It's, it's a good testimony. But what I'm trying to say is that let's make salvation the main thing. Christ didn't come because we have to prosper. Christ didn't come because we have to enjoy good marriages. Christ came to save. That is his purpose. Both parables, it talks about salvation. Salvation is of the utmost importance and utmost priority to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He came on this earth to save. Number three, every believer has to come to a place of repentance, else we will descend into religiosity. We always have to come to a place of repentance. That's why you have to read the Bible. When we read the Bible, we change our mind. We renew our mind. Renewing your mind is repenting. It's changing your mind. We always have to come to a place... May it not be said that we are just people who need no repentance. That is self-righteousness. And sometimes when you've been in the church too long, you can be guilty of being self-righteous. May the Lord deliver us from that. Number four, in Luke's narration, Christ is expecting us to win souls for the Lord and have a big heart to accommodate all. So in, in Luke's narration of the parable, 
The shepherd is left as blank check because Christ wants us to be that shepherd. That's why, believers, we are also taxed to be called shepherds and do the work of a shepherd. And when we do the work of a shepherd, the Bible lets us know that the chief shepherd, he will come and he will give us a crown of glory that does not fade. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. And then one mark of spirituality, number five, is restoration. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. The Bible lets us know that, brethren, if any man is overtaken in a fault, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Other versions use the spirit of gentleness. Considering thyself, least thou also be tempted. One mark of spirituality is restoration. If indeed we say we are Christians and we are following after the like manner of Christ, when we see people who are backslidden, who have left the faith, we will pray for them, we will intercede them, we will do everything possible to try to bring them back to the faith. That is a mark of spirituality. May we not become like the Pharisees, that we are just inward looking and we are just all about ourselves. It doesn't bless God. So in this friends and family month, may we have the heartbeat of our master, which is souls. Please let us pray with urgency and passion for souls. We have the next 10 days. Be part of this prayer in spirit, in soul, and in body. And let's pray with agency and passion for souls. Let's believe God that we will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with people. Let Christ be formed in us that through our manner of life, we will by all means win some to Christ. Amen. Thank you for giving me five minutes of your time. I truly appreciate it. I'm done for tonight. Uh, I won't take any more contributions and questions. So let's pray. Just read, um, listen to the message again. If you feel I, I went uh, over the points too quickly, I'm sure when you take your time to listen to the message, you'll be able to assimilate it better. Father, thank you for your word. May your word convict us. May your word change us. May we graduate from playing church, being superstitious, being self-religious, to being in a for real, for real, for real relationship with you. That of the truth. Our friends, people around us can say they are of Christ. Thank you that you have given us your hearts, your hearts, your passion for souls, May we be involved with that. May we not just have a passion for souls only in September. May we have a passion for souls all year round. Let your will be done in our lives tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.